Welcome to Illuminate Greatness, the podcast that explores the latest trends in marketing and public relations and highlights the most positively powerful brands and people who are making a difference in our world. And now your host, entrepreneur, marketing and public relations expert, advocate, spiritual explorer, mother, and founder of Olive Creative Strategies, Jennifer Borba von Stauffenberg. Welcome to Illuminate Greatness. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so privileged to be sitting here with Dave Oates. He is the founder of Public Relations Security Service. He is a crisis PR professional, which is an area that I don't have much experience in, thank (laughs) goodness. He has more than 25 years of experience, actually, in the field of public relations. He started his career as a U.S. Navy public affairs officer and later as the communication head of several for-profit entities. He's accredited in public relations. And he has also received his master's degree in business administration from SDSU and a bachelor of arts degree from the University of Maryland. And something he's very proud of as well as being the president of San Diego Rotary, the fourth largest Rotary club in the world. And I am so happy to have you here today because I love asking questions about crisis communication because I truly have been so fortunate to not have a ton of experience and really send everything your way that comes my way. Oh, you're kind to do so. And it's great to see you. We've known each other for, uh, it's kind of scary when you think about it. About 20 years. (laughs) I actually met Dave when I was an intern at the McCorder Group, and he was always the one that checked in with interns to make sure that we were learning and that we were having the experience that we wanted to have. And after those days, I've just always stayed in touch. And and especially when I started all of my own agency, you were one of the people that reached out, I think, on your own. I didn't even reach out to you to say, hey, I'm here as a resource to you if you need anything. And I'm just so grateful to you. It really has meant a lot. It's been a pleasure. That's right. Because I remember seeing that, I think, when you changed it on your LinkedIn profile or you sent out an email to announce to everybody. And it is fascinating to me, especially in this town, how many people that you meet in one entity that grow to another. And it's such a collaboration. So now this is a mutual admiration society. I'm a big fan of yours. Likewise. (laughs) I especially got to see a little bit more of your work recently. And I was just really inspired by a bit of the fierceness that you bring to the table when you're handling difficult situations. So I want to talk a little bit about that as we go forward. How did you get on track to have this career? Because you haven't always done crisis. So how did you get from where you started to here now? Well, actually, when I first started in PR as a Navy officer, as you talked about, crisis communications was just part of the job. I mean, I imagine that's true. I I was the last two years, as an example, I was the public affairs officer on board an aircraft carrier. Well, in the course of that time, we had two suicides. We had Mm -hmm. an aircraft crash. We had accidents on board. We had different mishaps occur when we were in foreign ports of call to the operations that we were doing and having to communicate, you know, sometimes not pleasant things, you know, to the community, media relations, international community. And so early on in the training, we were all skilled, taught in that discipline of crisis PR. But you're right, when I went into the private sector now, almost 20 years ago, most of the time we would do promotional stuff, Mm -hmm. whether it was at trade shows or media relations or what have you, that was part of- Product launches. Yeah. Really light, 
more information out into the world. Fun stuff. But yeah. I do remember that when we would have a client event, whether it was at McCorder or some of the following things I was doing, if there was an adverse situation, I was the one that was writing the crisis PR plan. But what's happened to your point, fast forward to a couple of years ago, the way in which we communicate now, largely through social media and online reviews and blogospheres, it's not just the big companies anymore that can find themselves embroiled in a crisis PR controversy. It really is any entity. Everybody. And, what I, and so what I found was is that probably just about two years ago, other PR firms like yours were gracious enough to call me in knowing my background and saying, can you help with this issue or we've got a referral for you and things like that. And it got to the point where I started to think, you know, maybe I should focus on just this discipline. And so I took a leap of faith about 15 months ago and it's you know, good and bad reasons. Business is really good, and I'm, I'm privileged <laughs> to be the guy that people call in when the fire is pretty hot and folks are trying to run out of the building, and I get to run in and be the voice of reason and the person who can show them a pathway at least to get through it. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be successful. It doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily reposition an organization to have a positive brand outlook by you know the intended audiences, but at least you can make it so that you can get through it quicker or be less bad and be able to get back to as least as normal operations are as possible. Definitely. I didn't have a chance to thank you for your service in the Navy, uh -huh. but I also want to go back to like earlier in your life. Uh -huh. When you were younger, did you expect that you would end up in this field or how did you land in this field in the beginning of your career? So my teenage and undergraduate years were outside of Washington, D.C., University of Maryland mm -hmm. being the undergraduate. and, and your backyard was essentially the federal government. Right. And so there were always issues and controversies and debates and things like that. And I really thought that I was going to be involved in politics. I was a political science major as an undergraduate. But what I found early on in undergraduate was that I also really enjoyed the news aspect of it mm -hmm. and also being a person who could convey information to news organizations. But I really put in the back of my mind as I was getting my commission, I was going into the surface warfare community, and it wasn't until about three years into that that I got the opportunity to have the collateral duty as public affairs for my first ship while I was doing anti-submarine warfare operations and all of that. And at that point, I realized that all the things that I really enjoyed in college and in that aspect was now coming to fruition and that I could actually do this as a profession. So while I, I would say that I didn't always know I was gonna be doing this as my job. Once I had the opportunity to do it, at least on a, on a little bit of a scale in the Navy, the aha moment kicked in almost immediately. And I said, no, this is what I want to do. This is the profession I want to be in. The Navy gave me that opportunity and I spent the rest of the you know nine years that I was in doing that. And then had, had a chance to have been doing that for now 20 years in the private sector. And I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. That's awesome. So before starting public relations security service, you had an agency with a different focus. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about the transition there? And I knew you back in the McCorder days, which was yeah. dot com, dot com bust happened. And then tell me a little bit about the stage in between McCorder Group and where you are today. Yeah. So when we met, I was literally maybe a year out of the Navy. McCorder, wow. McCorder was my first job. That's in the incredible. Navy. Yeah. I mean, you already had a lot of experience, but in my mind, as an intern, I saw you as like the top dog, <laughs> partly because 
every opportunity that I saw to see you guys doing the work, you commanded such strong attention, which was probably part of the gift of being in the Navy. And to me, you seemed in charge. And so it's crazy to hear that that was your first year out of that environment. Yeah, the the Navy teaches you, and really military does, and I credit the Marine Corps. I think the Marine Corps actually does the best job of teaching you critical thinking skills and decision-making capabilities in stressful situations. Mm -hmm. So everybody thinks, oh, military, they follow orders from somewhere on high. No, actually, even the most junior personnel has to make quick decisions in cases where you're in you know, a hot operations and you can't rely on somebody else. And, and so the military really teaches you that. So it played well for me when I got into the private sector and I appreciate that feedback. After McWhorter, I was at another PR firm for a couple of years and then got my op- a chance to be the marketing director for a hundred person, $20 million software company wow. in Northern part of San Diego County. That business got sold to a rival. And when I was looking for the next opportunity, I said, mm, maybe it's time to start my own gig. And I did. So it was Stalwart Communications was the name. And it was at what I called a pay on performance PR firm because being, again, going back to my Navy days, we were always being held to a metrics. Did what we do matter to the mission at hand? And what I found, at least in our agency environments, is they were more concerned about billing hours at the time. This is before you could really measure yes, the I was result. reading an article about you from your stalwart days yeah. <laughs> and it was talking about the pay for performance right. model. How do you, do you feel like the pay for performance model still works today? Do you use that at your current agency or how does? Not in the crisis scenario. And the reason that it is because you really aren't sure of what the outcome is going right. to be. And sometimes. And also it could be like a firestorm of media hits and that would be really interesting for a client to pay you Well, and I've got. I've challenging got a, yeah. media coverage. You know, we, we talked about this. I've got a client right now that we know well that the outcome's probably not going to be good. I mean, if you really were to look at the preponderance of facts and well, And also instances, just length of time yeah. that it goes on, it gets di- more and more dire. Yeah, this is probably, you know, the outcome's not going to be good. It might be less bad than, you know, is projected, but I don't see this thing getting any better. So I don't know if you can necessarily put any metrics on that. But to your point on the pay on performance model, I think the reason that other agencies can struggle with a retainer model is because now we can measure so much. You know, mm-hmm. clients, organizations, whether it's PR, whether it's social media, whether it's email marketing, whether it's pay-per-click, there are a plethora of analytical data that is available to then show what things are working and what's not. Now, sometimes they get they get the interpretations wrong. Right, so the vanity metrics and things like that. One of the things that we have found, we tried mm -hmm. to do a pay for performance model for one of our clients and once the account got momentum, it became too expensive for them to manage and then they wanted us to go back to our original pricing and we're like, whoa, this feels really good to get all this money for all this work. And I was, you know, from an agency side, it bummed me out because I'm like, well, hey, maybe we should try this more. This is good. So I found when the campaigns got really successful or in my one experience with it, they didn't want it anymore. And I'm like, this is when it really like feels like a good thing. Right. Well, and and I, so I don't know if necessarily agencies for that reason, right? If you get momentum can bill on a performance-based model, but I will tell you that agencies now more than ever, particularly on the promotional side, will be held to metrics. So Totally. Well, that's one of our values yeah. as an agency. I mean, so, we tell them in the front end, 
what metrics we're going to be looking for, what conversion rate they should be looking for, how, you know, because a lot of agencies won't, they think their end result is the hit itself. And we want to talk about the result of the results and if it's really working, because honestly, I don't want to do something that's not going to impact somebody's bottom line. And it's hundred percent. And I think now clients are becoming much more savvy in the understanding what is really valuable and no longer do they equate the press hit by itself to mean anything, at mm-hmm. least at least at a far greater scale than they ever did, certainly when we started. Absolutely. And now what happens is they go, yeah, that's great that you got the press hit, but what did this equate to in terms of website traffic, social media mm-hmm. engagement, responses, lead generation, if you're doing you know a top of the funnel type of scenario. And every agency, whether you bill on a performance-based model or you bill on a retainer model, in the promotional side, will be held accountable to that. But here's the other thing that the dynamic is that PR agencies and digital marketing agencies, social media agencies, we're all blending together. We're all skating to the same puck to use a hockey vernacular. Well, and don't you notice in a lot of cases, we actually are doing a lot of the same things that our industries just communicate them in different words. Totally. For example, I was in a meeting earlier today and somebody was asking about how long we've been doing influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. And I said, since the beginning of time, yeah, 100%. it's simply the change is that instead of the influencers always being journalists or business leaders, the influencers now specifically are social media influencers. And it, in my opinion, it's going to die out really fast right. if it's not already on the you know tail end of it. But it's just language in so many cases. Digital marketing firms talk about how they do public relations and they actually are doing something totally different. They're doing wire services, which in our agency world, we don't even touch or care about because it almost has zero value unless you're doing a very corporate product launch or you have shareholders who specifically have asked for that step. So it's just really interesting. It's all about language. Yeah. And I think the thing that companies need to think about when they're asking, well, what do you do? And somebody uses the term public relations or they use the term digital marketing is ask them, well, are you using paid channels or are you using earned media channels? Whether that's through the San Diego Union Tribune, the LA Times or the New York Times or JoeBagadonuts.com, you know, the guy who seems to be the expert in a particular field or particular profession is, do they, without really any compensation, still tell their audience about you or your organization or some event that occurs because they feel that it's important for their audience to know that. And that type of press coverage or notoriety, as you know, is so much more valuable than the stuff that you pay for. So that's really the discipline and how good they are on that one. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, nowadays, there's a whole bunch of options for organizations to get that kind of a service. At the same time, I see a lot of people asking for crisis PR help and crisis management, well, help, which is why I morphed to that. So it's been that way for about a, nah, about 18 months now. And I have noticed more now than ever in the 20 years that I've been doing mm. this, that there are more small crises too. It's not just the big ones. And part of that is that people have access to tools that give them tremendous visibility and people can say anything they want to say at any time. And I know that we have had to train our clients over the years to not have a reaction to a lot of the things because there are trolls on social media, for example, who give no regard for how much people put into building these beautiful businesses and they just go to town. And so would you agree that part of the reason there's so much crisis is 
in large part due to the tools and resources that people have available to them? 100%. I've been asked this question several times, and there is a concern I think I have from a societal standpoint that I think we are shouting at each other more on tools. I hate it. Yeah, uh, on tools that so that are, you know, at the on your phone at the end of your hand and you can scream and holler all you want and people perceive themselves to have some sort of anonymity so they can say whatever they want regardless of fact and that means any organization can go from hero to zero in an Instagram post. Is it fair? No. Are there social ramifications for that? Yeah, probably. Totally. Does it mean you still have to address it? Yeah. And so And isn't that so uh, scary for large businesses? I think about this all the time. And there was a period of time, and I think it's evolved, where people were hiring like their cousin's daughter yeah. to do social media yeah, yeah. for large companies. Totally. And they'd have hundreds of thousands of followers, and yet still they're doing this. And not recognizing the importance of precision with communication on a tool like Twitter, for example. And somebody could say one misguided culturally inappropriate comment and it could turn an entire business on its back. And I just have been blown away by that over the years, particularly it seems like it happens every once in a while in fast food industries and (laughs) things like that, where somebody says something inappropriate and they're just in a crazy place. Yeah. So it requires organizations to do two things. It requires them to be ready to respond within an hour, not within a news cycle, not within this you know, standard 24 hours later, you have to respond within an hour on something that shows empathy and action. That's the second mm-hmm. point, empathy and action. The third thing do, which is sort of a... And you're specifically talking about social media for the moment. But even... even uh, In general now. E- even with news media, right? Okay. Because news media doesn't follow the five o'clock or six o'clock news cycle. They've got to post something online because they're using social media channels to get their audience. Breaking you news. Know, that's a minute. They're updates. building up that revenue stream because... The average age now of the six o'clock news viewer is seventy, right? Yeah. The the newspaper printed newspaper circulation is as low as it's been since nineteen forty five. And oh by the way, there's two and a half times more people in there. So you have an hour regardless of platform wow. to show empathy and action. But then the underlining thing, and this is probably where promotional agencies still have a play, is you need to build that following that comes to your age so it's not just you talking Somebody about it. Somebody who recognizes your values and knows that you're consistently impeccable so that when this one thing happens, it doesn't break you. Right, completely. so you have this nice combination of you show empathy in action and you have this following that will come to your aid and that will diffuse a situation as quick as anything else. The lack of one or the other will extend this crisis scenario for an extended period of time. And if it's really bad, it could be in perpetuity. I mean, it literally could go on it for, for quite some time. So for people who are listening who don't have a background in crisis communications, mm-hmm. how specifically do you define crisis communications? We just gave an example of social media. Yeah. What is this area covered? Like, how do you define... I actually define it in very general terms. It's the idea of any public event, anything in the public domain that disrupts operations. And that could be it delays sales. It has customers and partners questioning your brand value that all so of a sudden... it's not now, always like a colossal mistake. Sometimes oh no. it's a back order of really popular product. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you... Okay. I'll give you an example. So let's, we, we've been talking about some not pleasant stuff, but... Yeah, let's talk about the lighter stuff to not scare well, everybody. How about... So <laughs> you may have heard this one. Chick-fil-A last week had a social media post go out there talking about happy National Sandwich Day on November 3rd. Well, November 3rd fell on a Sunday. Chick-fil-A's are closed on Sunday because, you know, they follow, they're uh, grounded in a a faith-based structure. And so they 
they don't operate, none of their stores operate on a Sunday. So, so they were telling people, hey, celebrate National Sandwich Day, and they can't get a Chick-fil-A product on that day. And so immediately, within a very short period of time, they put out a Twitter post that said, well, that was awkward. And they talked That's about really how that they were there. And they fell on their own sword. We're sorry, tongue in cheek. We thought it was clever. They didn't and they have any promotions. They can't really afford any big falls after some of their very big falls in the past. Or right? some of the public events by their leadership. Now Popeyes got on there. I have a video cast, a video blog on this one. But Popeyes came in and sort of, you know, took advantage of it and made it tongue in cheek. But everybody has a good laugh. You diffuse the situation. Totally. Yeah, everybody knows that, you know, it was tongue in cheek and, you know, you, you move on from that one. So it can be as simple as that. Yeah. Again, empathy and action showing that, well, that was kind of silly of us. And you move on pretty quickly from that. Now, if it's a bigger issue involving some pain and discontent for uh, inflicted on other people, well, then, you know, it's probably a little more serious. But that that's an example of a crisis PR, right? It disrupted Definitely. operation. People started questioning what was their intention? What right. was their deal? Now you've got to expend resources to answer that. Well, that takes away from delivering your product and customers in a way. So I would call that a crisis. What are some of the recent things that have happened that you think could have totally been avoided? And also for anybody listening, on his website, what is your URL? It's publicrelationssecurity.com. Perfect. Yeah. He posts great videos and commentary <laughs> on a regular basis about almost every major crisis that happens. <laughs> and I find them very interesting. And so if you are interested in learning more about this, Dave provides a wealth of information and in response to just about everything going on. It's entertaining, educational, and really a great place to learn, especially if this is a field for anybody that maybe doesn't have expertise in it, but might want to go into this later, or somebody who has a role who doesn't always know what to do, he'd be a great resource to go to for I appreciate information. That. But so what are some of the, the ones that you think like, wow, you just really blew it and you could have done this differently by doing X, Y, and Z? Uh, the one that comes to mind was actually, I'll give another fast food example. The McDonald's franchises in Europe had this promotion that they put out there where it was one of their Sunday desserts, but with the strawberry icing sauce. And they came up with this moniker for around the Halloween time period called Sunday Bloody Sunday, trying to promote the gore of Halloween. Well, anybody who knows history, Bloody Sunday was a big massacre by British troops against Northern Ireland wow, citizens. Wow, that's so bad. If you guys could see my face. <laughs> it's, it, it, and so you have to stop it. And this is again a European oh, campaign. So, so this bad. isn't like this isn't like you you were marketing this in North America or Africa or Asia. Right. And sort of okay, somebody took it out of context, but we were culturally sensitive to that area. No, this was smack dab in the middle of Europe. And so you have to stop and you go. You go, wait, 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 How did it get through wait, all what? the levels right. to get to the end? That's the right. thing that I always think about. So this is a good segue into like, what does one do? Like, what is the first thing somebody should do when they realize that they've done something as ridiculous as this? Yeah. So or you, not like in any crisis. So whether it's your own fault or it's fault, not of your own circumstances, you know, exterior circumstances, you have to respond within an hour. It has to be so a state. One hour. Is you got, you got an hour thing. you have a statement that has to be distributed as broad as you can be to the following audiences. And this is where I think the other part that most organizations miss because they always go back to the media. They think that it's, let's just get a press release out and we'll be done with this one. No, the first 
audience you have to tell is your employees because your employees are on the front line. So internal communications to your employee staff so they know what's going on, they know what's happening. You're showing them that you're taking this seriously. And even the step before that, I think that's, I was recently interviewed and that was one of the questions and I thought it was kind of funny. I was being asked about crisis communications, <laughs> but I said, the first thing I tell my clients before I call Dave Oates is to <laughs> get in touch with all of the key decision makers who need to be aware of it before you even go out to employees. And for most of our clients, when they've asked us to put together crisis plans, which really I genuinely say call Dave Oates for these moments, I have always said, you need to have a call list that every executive on the team knows to get in touch with. Is that not something that you think is important no, anymore? I, I think it can be. I'm, I'm always leery about when you try to get everybody in the room who may not be available. So don't delay, don't delay, don't delay getting a statement out there. If you're still waiting on the one person on the executive team who happens to be in a meeting or happens to be on a plane and is not available because, great advice. because the delay will cause angst and concern for that one there. So if you've got one or two of the executives, obviously the people who would be in charge of external communications, that's fine. If they're not available, next run down, but get a statement out within an hour and start with your employees, then your customers, investors, partners, and then media. If you've got to pick that priority list, that's the list because your employers are the ones who are on the front lines. Your customers need to hear from you before they hear from a third party. The people who are providing you the raw materials to produce your products or helping you service your clients are going to need to know. Your investors sure as hell want to know. And the media is important, but not at those expenses. United is a perfect example for that. When they dragged that guy off of the plane a couple of years ago. Oh, yes. And then they put out a press release to the media and left everybody else sort of high and dry. The thing carried over for weeks because right. customers felt disenfranchised, employees felt disenfranchised. So what happened is people started shredding their frequent flyer cards on video and posting them online because they ran a playbook that's 20 years out of date. Jeez. Yeah. So going back to McDonald's in Europe, what did they do? They had to, and I think far later than they needed to, it was like a day or so later on, they had to humbly apologize for their insensitivity. They pulled the campaign. And now you're going to have to go through. Now, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but if I was their counselor, I would tell them, you're going to have to create other culturally sensitive campaigns to offset the sheer stupidity that was this. How long this one day. do you think that they'll have to do something like that? I, I think I think three years end. I think it's a couple of months, right? Because it'll be brought up there. And just think about it. anytime you're going to Google McDonald's Europe, this stuff's going to come up too. Mm-hmm. So think about just the SEO damage that that's done for McDonald's and quite some. You know that yeah, this is going to be expensive for them. The United one. How long did it take them to get? their market cap back up. You know, and how I'll admit comes. that like a year later, I still felt uncomfortable when the only flight that would get me to a meeting on time was United. And I was embarrassed, but I had to take that flight because it would have sacrificed time with my business and with my family. And then to get to this meeting on time. And I was like ashamed getting on the plane. And that's a great point you bring up there. It's a real bad position. And airlines have this as an advantage because sometimes they own that specific route. But when your patrons are paying for your service or buying your product, not because they want to, but because they have to, that's an awful place to be because as soon as somebody comes in with a better offering or even an identical offering, they're jumping ship really quick. 
Yep, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have paid a little bit more if there was even a single other option because I had shame going into a flight, which is so ridiculous. And but imagine the morale of that employee base too, right? So this goes back to why I talked about employees. Can you imagine what their day was like afterwards when patrons were coming up to, you know, check in at the front desk and check in their bags? I'm sure half of them got, oh, you're going to throw me off my plane too? Mm. So think about the morale of that and how so that's going to transcend to service. So it can be a death spiral. It's, you know, it's awful. So in the instance when somebody gets a negative media story that mm -hmm. comes out, what then? How do you handle a situation like that? So, it, I, And I, I know it's case by case, yeah. but in general, like what's a good rule of thumb for somebody who owns a business or is in this industry and hasn't quite yet had this experience? Yeah, I tell clients always call me when things are developed because at least you'll have the opportunity to get your complete narrative told at the same time that the story goes out there. But nine times out of 10, clients call me after the fact. The story's already run, it's 24 hours late, then I get the call. So there's two assessments that have to be done. One is, do you think that there's a follow-on news cycle? Do you think that this thing will carry a second to third legs? And if it is, then you have to be proactive in reaching out to media before the second story runs. But if it's a one and done, then the next thing you've got to be concerned about is how is the long tail effect, if you will, on social media and SEO. And what you'll probably have to do is look for opportunities to create positive stories, genuinely authentic, positive stories in a way that will ultimately be seen at the same time that these other negative stories are. So at least the audience will get somewhat of a better picture as to who the organization really is. It's not ideal, but that's oftentimes what has to occur if you wait a day and the story's already run. Because once it's run, it's embedded and you really are gonna spend a lot more money to try to counter that. Mm -hmm. What about social media posts? What is your recommendation for, I guess uh, in my mind, I'm thinking about the times when a little firestorm starts, mm -hmm. somebody posts something yep. and then everybody starts to Go for it. I'll give you an example. This happened a few years ago, but there is a t-shirt manufacturer in the north here of San Diego County. They make these cute little toddler t-shirts with these characters of different activities. And so they could be sports figures, ballerinas, scientists, teachers, you name it. And the idea is you put them on, you know, somewhere between a six-year-old and under kid and, you know, the kid's face with the body suit and they True. pretend to be things. So they sell through distributors and one of the stores... For some reason, we think it was a kid who was either thinking they were being funny or they were ticked off that day, put on these hangers that this company would send separately with these actual kid model faces. They put an African-American boy's face on a monkey bodysuit t-shirts. <gasps> so there's this whole line of it. So what happened was is some customer went by, took a photo of this one. They see the line of this African-American boy's face on this monkey bodysuit, put the uh, t-shirt manufacturers Twitter handle on this post oh, and said, no. explain this. The CEO calls me. It's uh, three o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. And he says, the New York Daily News is calling me. What do I do? By the next morning, it was all the major television stations, all the networks, all of the AP, Reuters, TMZ, UK Daily Mail, and this 30-person t-shirt manufacturer in the north part of San Diego wow. County. It's devastating. For 48 hours, we answered every social media post, every email, changed the 800 numbers, and responded to every journalist who was writing a story on this one with a statement that said, we saw this the same time you did. We neither condone, nor authorize, nor accept this. We apologize that it happened. Did they survive this? They did. 48 hours, the story died, and they didn't lose a single distributor from that one because we were able to very quickly, as soon as he got the story, 
the reporter called. I said, here's the statement. He got me engaged. We had a statement. We responded back to the reporter. So when those stories ran, they had the side of the story that said, we didn't know about this. We don't accept this. We're telling our distributors to take that display down. We are sending out further instructions and we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. But it took 48 hours of answering every social media post, every email, and every phone message. And the reason for that was because we wanted to make sure there was no ambiguities to where the company stood. But it was a lot of effort for a 48-hour period. But that's how you get through a scenario like that, by sending it. And yeah, responding to a social media post, even ones that were, so they the were nasty. the moral of the story is you have to face it. You have to and face you need it. need to have, if you do not know what to do and you don't know where to start, honestly, Call Dave Oates. What is your URL again? Uh, it's publicrelationssecurity.com. You can even get my cell phone number. It's 858-750-5560. 858-750-5560. And the reason I give my cell phone is because most crises don't occur between the hours of 9 and 5. No. <laughs> they and I'll occur. tell you, I have called Dave myself. Anytime somebody calls me, I will. What I say to my clients is that I'll walk into the lion's den or I'll stand in the lion's den with a client, but I will not walk into one with a stranger. And Dave is the guy that will help. And I've had situations where I'm so grateful that very few crazies have come up in my entire mm-hmm. career. But when they have come up, they've been really incredible learning experiences. Usually it has something to do with a larger organization that makes a decision that doesn't share the values with one of the people that I'm working with, but it's insane. So I know we're running out of time, but I wanna hear, how do you think it's going to change going forward? Because it's not getting better. I'm just noticing more and more stuff popping up as a result of social media. It's a great question. I don't have a really good answer for you other than I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. But I do think at some point, and I think we're seeing this in some respects, that people are getting rid of their Facebook accounts because they don't like the way that the shouting matches occur on politics or anything else online. So they're they're getting rid of Facebook and they may be going to Instagram. I only use Facebook right. for professional and on the very slight occasion, it puts me in a really yeah. bad mood. I recognized on several occasions when I traced back my anxiety at the end of the day to where it started, it was from accidentally seeing something I never would want to see on Facebook. 100%. We're also seeing that the viewerships for like the Fox News and the MSNBCs of the world are declining. People are not watching that sort of stuff. Well, you so- can't have it on inside your house anymore because it, if you have children, it's toxic it really content is. for their heads. The flip side of that, though, is that we may find ourselves in these silos of like-minded groupthink individuals that when somebody brings in an outside perspective on something, that we will still feel that anxiety and we'll have a lot of people will have that vitriolic response. It may not be as frequent. It may not be as harsh, but it'll still be there. So the question is, how do we get into a civil discourse environment where we're not shouting at each other and people can have sort of realistic dialogues to diffuse situations? I don't know. Do, do you I think, think part of this is because even though places like Facebook have been around for you know 10 plus years, mm-hmm. it's still fairly new in our society to have so much access to express ourselves in this way. I mean, I remember the first time I posted on MySpace I <laughs> deliberated for so long what my photo would look like, what I was going to say. Would yeah. anybody read it correct, yeah. incorrectly? Could I offend anybody? And now, 
I mean, you get in your car after a meeting and you just blah, 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 out into the world yeah. without any thought ever. This does, I'm not, I don't call myself a history buff, but the current state of sort of communications rings very eerily similar to what I understand to be at the Industrial Revolution when the printing press costs were going down. And so you'd have all these neighborhood newspapers and they were all yellow journalism and muckraking journalism to get eyeballs, the fake news mm-hmm. of that day. And so this has similar dynamics to it. And I think sometime it will evolve into something that's a little bit more constructive. When, where, how, I, I, I don't so. know. But but uh, for now, it's good business anyway. <laughs> Sad well, to say. Happy for you. <laughs> yeah. Not so happy for everyone else. That's okay. What is your advice for anyone listening who doesn't have a crisis plan in place right now? What should they do on the chance that something could go wrong? Like, is there anything we can prepare for in advance? Well, I think first and foremost, before you get into communications, if you don't have a crisis plan for things like an IT breach or HR related matters or shareholder disputes or product recall, operationally, you need to have those in place. And then from there, you're gonna need to, just because of the way in which we communicate now and the desire and demand by customers and employees and partners to have regular, communications with their companies and with their people that they associate, you're going to have to create a communication plan on top of that to convey information within an hour of something occurring. But if you don't even have response plans for cyber breaches, uh, Me Too issues, sexual harassment, product recalls, things of that nature within your organization, get that done now. You need to get that operational plan. Do you help people with that piece as well? Okay. Should do, and I think it'll actually be a growing part of the business is to bring in experts, whether it's on the COO side, IT side, financial side, sales side. A crisis PR event is typically a symptomatic of something that's a bigger operational problem, and if you don't get to that at some point, you may get through a crisis PR situation, but you'll be prone to having another one occur in the not too distant future. Got it. This was so informative and so helpful. It's a different way that people get illuminated, Mm. but it certainly happens. And I'm so grateful to you for being of service to me all the times that I have contacted you for questions and help and for all the people that you've served. It has, I'm sure, been such a blessing to have you around to guide the ship. And truly, if you don't have a crisis plan in place and you own a business, contact Dave to find out what this looks like for you and get something going because unfortunately it is happening more and more and you put so much into what you do that you really should have all the safety nets in place to support you going forward. I really appreciate you being here with us today and I am looking forward to continuing this conversation again. I'm so happy to be here. I'm such a thrill to see you again and thanks for this opportunity. This has been so much fun. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Interested in receiving free marketing and public relations resources? Visit IlluminateGreatness.com and subscribe to our newsletter to receive valuable weekly content that will inspire you and help you grow your business. That's IlluminateGreatness.com. Thank you for listening to the Illuminate Greatness podcast brought to you by Olive Creative Strategies.